Thanks, Kevin. <clears throat> Good morning. I was thinking about it as I was sitting there, like uh, is so often the case, God has plans for me, and then I go messing with it, and things get a little bit messed up. So in that same vein, uh, we did a mic check earlier, and I changed everything, so let me know if I've messed that up as well, because uh, I went to messing with something that was already working. So uh, thank you guys for having me this morning. Glad to be with you. Um, it's a privilege. It's an honor to, to be asked to, to be here. We do pray that uh, Pastor David's having just a restful, uh, relaxing time, a refreshing time um, away. Uh, the demands of a lead pastor are, are great, and uh, lead pastors need time away to, to renew and be refreshed. So we do pray for him in this time. Um, as Kevin said, my name is Jimmy Braddock. I am the associate pastor at Calvary Chapel Northeast. Um, again, just grateful to be here. Um, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, and it seems like it's the case more and more frequently. Anytime I prepare to uh, share a message, uh, lead a group, whatever it is, um, not only does the enemy go into uh, hyperdrive, into overtime to, to distract, um, I can just be easily distracted. I am a... Uh, uh, crazy collision of ADD and OCD. Um, you'll probably hear some of that today or this morning, but what that means is things have to be just right, but only for about five seconds, and we'll move on to something else. So as I'm going through this time of, you know, just 8,000 things bombarding and only being able to process so much at one time, the last several weeks have been busy and I've felt like a dog running on linoleum. Now, if you can get that visual, there's a whole lot of movement but not a lot of forward progress. That's what I felt like the last several weeks. And if it wasn't being just bombarded with all these distractions, I'd finally get to a place where I could sit and focus. And folks, it is possible, at least for a male of the human species, to think about absolutely nothing. I'd sit and nothing would come to mind. I felt like I was in this, this void where no no inspiration, no influence was coming. And uh, so it's just been a crazy few weeks. Um, and I do believe that that's an attack of the enemy, that he'll use all kinds of circumstances to keep us from, from sharing what, uh, what the Lord's called us to share. Um, to some extent, I'm exaggerating a little bit. And of course, there's a joke in that. But uh, as someone who's dealt with frequently anxiety, depression, um, it's easy for me to get overwhelmed, and when I get overwhelmed, it's easy to get frustrated. When I get frustrated, it's easy to start asking those questions. Am I even capable of doing what I think the Lord's calling me to do? Is he calling the right guy? I can't, I can't do this. And I start to question my calling. Am I even capable of doing ministry or helping anybody? I feel ill-equipped and underqualified. And in some of the darkest times I've felt, uh, there's no fruit in my life. And I can sink into questioning whether I'm even being useful or helpful at all. Give a little bit of a just very brief history as far as ministry. The Lord saved me from the bondage of sin and self a little over 20 years ago and started pulling me into ministry about 13 years ago. I uh, was ordained through a small Baptist church plan over in Kershaw County that we were part of for about 10 years 
Um, had the privilege of serving as the program director at the Providence Home, which is a transitional men for or transitional facility for men dealing with uh, primarily substance abuse issues and homelessness, um, but had the privilege of serving there for almost nine years until last March when I came on staff with Pastor Brennan at Calvary Chapel Northeast as the missions and outreach pastor. Um, and just last week was ordained into as a Calvary Chapel pastor and now serve as the associate pastor there at Calvary Chapel Northeast. So my first official duty as associate pastor at Calvary Chapel Northeast is to be with you at Calvary Chapel Irma this morning. So uh, so grateful, again, to be able to do that. <clears throat> I'll go ahead and give you a warning up front that what I'm going to share with you is not going to be in the traditional Calvary Chapel verse-by-verse format. Yes, we will be in the Word. Um, but since it's my first time here, I felt like I needed to introduce myself. I wanted to share some of my story. I wanted to share sort of where I've come from, what's shaped and framed where I am and who I am today. Um, I wanted you to hear that. I uh, was talking with Pastor David last week, and uh, we're doing some, some different missions and some new outreach over at Northeast, and we would love to invite you guys into doing some of that with us. And I wanted you guys to know before we started to talk about that, who you were yoking up with, who you're, who you're partnering with in those ministries. And then lastly, I don't believe that I'm the only one who struggles with feelings of inadequacy or being ill-equipped. I just don't believe that I am. If I am, then maybe I'm the only one that I'm talking to today. But if I'm not, then I feel like we need to talk about some of that. So what I want to share with you this morning is the importance of our story, God's love in that story, and our usefulness. I've been asked several times what the title of our message this morning was going to be, and I could say it's the prodigal son, it's my story, it's me being a prodigal, it's you being a prodigal, it's God's love woven all through that and how he can use a mess, a screw-up like me, to somewhat be useful in this world that we're living in. <clears throat> it's all the above. I was talking with a friend recently about the power of our story. We could talk all day about principles and practices and applications from an academic and even theological perspective and still leave that conversation clueless about how to apply those principles and practices in our daily lives. But when we hear the story, the backstory, the origin story of the one sharing those principles and practices, when we know where that person has come from, then we can see how those things can work in our daily lives. How we can take what the Lord has done through this person and understand how that can make a difference in my life. In other words, we can tell people all day long what they need to do, but they'll truly grasp it when they not only hear it from us, but see it in our lives and stories. God's given you a story. The author of our faith and the creator of the universe has written this amazing love story and in it has included an incredible part for each of us. Our story is powerful. It's important. We're supposed to share it. There are divine appointments for every single one of us here, people who are just waiting to hear your story. And we might just be the only representation of Jesus that those folks ever see. We can never underestimate the power of our own testimony in someone else's life. When we tell others that or what he's done for our soul, 
when we give a defense for the hope that is in us. We don't have to be a theologian or a pastor or someone with a platform. I believe the most effective and meaningful evidence of the existence of God are the miraculous stories of everyday people in everyday life. I love the story in Acts 4 where Peter and John are preaching and, and, and though they were perceived to be common, uneducated men, the council, the rulers, recognized that they had been with Jesus. As the council's trying to figure out what to do with Peter and John, they order them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. I love their response. It's awesome. Verses 19 and 20, but Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Seen and heard. Or how about what we find in the story of the man with the demons? He was living among the tombs, bound in shackles and chains, naked, out of his mind. He has an encounter with Jesus. And the next thing we read is that the people came to see what happened and found this man sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. Then the man begs Jesus to go with him. And Jesus responds by saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. My favorite testimony in all of scripture, I think the most powerful, is also probably the shortest. It's when Jesus gives a blind man sight. We all know the story. We know that the, the Pharisees are, are just after this guy. And, you know, what, is he a sinner? How did he do it? Is it real? Are, were you really healed? Were you really blind to start with? All of these things are just peppering him. And he answers... Whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. I can just imagine this blind man when being pressured by the Pharisees saying, look, I've already told you. I don't know all these things that you're asking. I don't know much at all. But what I do know is that I was blind, I met Jesus, and now I see. He might not have known a lot, but he had a story, and he was an expert in that story. I say often that I came through school relatively unscarred by education. I don't know a whole lot, but what I know is that I was blind. I met Jesus, and now I see. I grew up having a fairly normal childhood and somewhat involved in church. Had a dad that nothing I did was ever good enough, and a mom who thought I could do no wrong. It leads to an interesting place, somewhat like the ADD-OCD uh, conflict. I grew up an egomaniac with an inferiority complex. Couldn't do anything wrong, couldn't do anything right. Mom was essentially the spiritual leader in our home and had us in church most times, while Dad was either absent or harshly critical of everything I did. I say that for a long time my story focused pretty much only on how bad my dad was. I finally got into a place that I can say, I believe he did the best he could with what he had. Or maybe better said, with who he knew or what he knew. <clears throat> Since mom had us in church, I knew of God, but my views of him were based on the way I felt about my dad. If I couldn't do anything right for my earthly father, how could I ever please a heavenly father? God, based on this assessment, was critical. He was distant and certainly not personal, at least not for me. 
Even as a leader in youth groups growing up, I basically felt like God loved me because he had to, but he probably didn't like me a whole lot. These views and feelings I developed as a young boy caused me to run from God for 20 plus years. As a teenager, I sought comfort and acceptance in alcohol and sexual experiences. This lifestyle continued and escalated through college, my 20s, and into my 30s. Romans 1 verses 19 through 23 tell us, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. See, I had experienced the love of God. I was without excuse. I knew that it was good, but I chose to chase what I thought was better, and I chased it hard. Like the prodigal son, I was willing to exchange the eternal goodness and love of the Father for temporary satisfaction and gratification. Every time God would show his favor on me or put me in a a, a good place, uh, I'd kick into another gear of running from him. I want you to be a leader in a youth group start drinking on the weekends. I want you to go to go graduate from high school. I want you to go to the Citadel. Went to the Citadel, partied hard and got kicked out. I want you to go in law enforcement. I became a state trooper, worked hard, but played even harder. God gave me a beautiful bride. I played and ran harder. Gave me a baby girl. After she was born, I stayed for stayed drunk for two weeks. It was essentially gone the first six years of her life, on and on. In 2001, at rock bottom and ready to die, I cried out to the God that I'd been running from for so long. I really didn't care whether I lived or died. I just wanted the way that I felt to end. I can only imagine that the, the lost son at the end of his rope felt similar and cried out to just be a servant in the Father's house because if I don't die, anything is better than here. Over the years, I'd responded to many invitations, but each time the weight of my sin was not yet great enough to fully impact me. Until that changed, I wasn't able to see the extent of my brokenness or my desperate need for healing. The outside, for the most part, had always looked good. Youth group, athlete, popular, State trooper, I was the youngest commissioned law enforcement officer in the state for six months. All sorts of other superficial or material things, but inside I was dying and despair started to grow. Despair is a feeling of perceived hopelessness, and I was experiencing it. Desperation, though, is an actual place, and it's a place where I was living. It's a pit created by despair, void of any sense of hope, and it looks a lot like rock bottom. Rock bottom, however, is a great place to build a brand new foundation. See, God can meet us only where we are and change us us only as we are. Not where we wish we were or who we pretend to be. If we allow it, desperation, because it brings us closer to God, can actually be a gift. And this new foundation is one of hope where my recovery started. I beg God to let me die or help me. 
I'm here, so he didn't opt for the former. The latter came true, and I got sober in AA, but still didn't fully surrender. I kind of hung out on the fringes, not yet sure what surrender and obedience looked like, and really still not sure if a true relationship with the God that I had imagined many years before was even possible. I didn't yet fully understand that what I needed was not behavior modification. I didn't need to just quit drinking. I needed to be transformed. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 to 21. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable... He will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. A few years after getting sober, we got involved with the local church, and I began to understand just how far off my views of God really were. And like the father of the prodigal, God was waiting for me with open arms. In fact, he ran to meet me, covering the gap that I had created that I could never cover on my own. I began to understand grace and that my identity was in him and not in the things that I had done. The Lord began to reveal his plans for me and I was baptized and dedicated my life to Christ in 2008. I immersed myself in Christ-centered recovery and have been privileged to walk with and disciple many others in their recovery journeys. I gave my wife every reason in the world to leave me and was essentially absent the first six years of my daughter's life. Last month, Julie and I celebrated 30 years of marriage. It's a testament to God's grace and certainly her patience. My daughter, who's now 26, doesn't remember those times that I wasn't there. And my now 19-year-old daughter has never seen me take a drink. Her name's Karis, which means grace. I've had the privilege of baptizing all three of them. My favorite definition of recovery is to return something to a state of usefulness. For something to need to be returned to a state of usefulness, it has to have become useless. God has taken something that was at one time useless and dishonorable, cleansed me, given me a purpose and a plan, and has made me useful. Both the prodigal and I just wanted to not live like we were anymore. And God said, okay, but I've got a whole lot more for you. Anytime I tell my story or I hear someone else's prodigal story, I can't help but think of two words, ideas or themes really, because there's so much more than just words, and that's love and grace. Absent the grace of God, I'm incapable of producing any good fruit on my own. Like I said before, I feel ill-equipped. God reminds me frequently of some things, no matter how bad my days are, no matter how many times I screw things up, I'm never more or less loved by him than I am in this very moment. He loves me right now, unfathomably, and it's always right now. His love and grace are the gifts that he gives so that we can, by the direction of the Holy Spirit, be equipped and useful in whatever it is he calls us to. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, 
having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For these qualities are yours and are increasing. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So we've got instructions there. What do we need to do? What do we, what do we follow to be made useful? And if we don't, we're useless. We're blind. Remember, we were blind. We met Jesus. Now we see. <clears throat> the story that I've been talking about, obviously, is the story of the prodigal son. And we could talk about that for days and days. There are books, Bible studies, uh, readings. Um, I've got one that's a 30-day through just, just the prodigal son. And, and uh, we could talk about that for days. The word prodigal has two different definitions. There's plenty, but two that I've focused on. One is spending money and resources recklessly or being wastefully extravagant. And by that definition, uh, certainly the, the son fits and I fit and I think most of us, if we're honest, fit in that description. The son spent, yes, recklessly, but I think we'd agree that based on the second definition, which says it is someone that has or gives something lavishly, we could call the father a prodigal as well. I want to share with you what I think could be a letter from a prodigal father to his lost son. Son, I've loved you since before you were born. I've always been so excited about the fact that you are my child. I love you. I've loved you with no regrets, no conditions, and without fail. I watched you grow into a young man, and I didn't say anything when you started to make bad choices. I love you. But when you came to me and said that you wanted what was rightfully yours and you were going to leave, my heart broke. But I didn't stop loving you. You see, when you asked for your inheritance, what I heard was that you wished I were dead and you wanted nothing more to do with me. Maybe you didn't mean it that way. Regardless, I never loved you any less. Son, I love you. I heard that you were not doing well and I longed for you to return because I love you. I waited and waited and waited because I love you. I would come out on my porch every morning hoping to see you coming home because I love you. I heard that things got really bad and everyone was talking about that boy. I waited some more because I love you. I heard that you were at the end of your rope and I thought maybe, just maybe, this is what it would take. And I waited. Then that day, oh, that glorious day, when I saw you, coming home when I saw what I had dreamed about for so long the day that you returned tears of joy streamed and I couldn't hold back I had to get to you because I love you I didn't care about anything else but because you were home and I love you we cried we laughed we danced we celebrated why because I love you I didn't care what you had done. It didn't matter because I love you. Son, I have never not loved you. 
you leave me a thousand times, I will run to you a thousand times because I love you. See, we have such a narrow, small, paltry concept of love. Artists have tried to capture it in painting, poets in verse, musicians in song. I'll ask you to bear with me a minute. Jay Giles' band said that love stinks. Pat Benatar said it's a battlefield. Queen called it a crazy little thing. Elvis couldn't help falling into it. Foreigner wanted to know what it is, and the Beatles said it's all you need. Van Morrison sang about a crazy love, and Jackie Wilson said your love keeps lifting me higher. It's been said it hurts, it bleeds, it bites, it lies, it kills, on and on. And I've only scratched the surface of what our culture says of love. Some of you got most of those references and some of you are looking at me like, who? What? Huh? Obviously, these aren't the kind of love that we're talking about. But we just throw that word around. It's a two cent word for us. Doesn't really mean a whole lot. We love certain foods. We love our sports teams. We love our music, our hobbies, whatever it is. And I think we settle for what the world says love is when God tells us that his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. If God is love, then obviously his idea of love is way different than ours. His idea or love is patient and kind. Love doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant, rude, irritable, or resentful. Love bears all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. His love is unfathomable, unconditional, incomprehensible, and unwavering. His love stepped out of paradise and into time, put on skin and lived the life that we could not live, died the death we should have died so that we could be righteous, fruitful, and useful and well-equipped. His love frees, protects, empowers, and binds. His love is such that nothing can ever separate us from it. The giver of life never gives up on us. The one who is and is the source of all hope is never without hope for us. The author and perfecter of our faith is himself faithful even when we are not. And he never loses faith in us. Jesus, the perfect picture, the very definition of love, has never not loved you. I started with with my story and and the chapter in Romans where we're told that we're without excuse. And, of course, that chapter goes on to talk about God handing us over to, to our desires. We're without excuse to his nature, his existence, his attributes. And I'll close with this, that 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 primary attribute is love. And it's that knowledge that ultimately draws us back to him. We love him because he first loved us. It's the love that drew the son, or it's the love that the son experienced early that brought him back to the father later. It's the father's love that brought me home And it's that love that empowers us to do anything that he calls us to do. It's his love that takes what was once useless and dishonorable and makes it honorable and useful. That transformation is testament to his love. It's our story of his grace. There are people whose lives, and more importantly, their eternities, 
depend on us being bold and confident in telling our story of having been blind, meeting Jesus, and now being able to see. See, I may not know a whole lot, but I know that. I know that I was one way. I met Jesus, and now I'm different. And I can't but talk about it. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for this day that you've given us. Lord, we, uh, gosh, Lord, we just pray that our, our trust in you would be equally proportionate to our desperate need for you. Lord, we, when we say thank you for loving us the way you do, the words thank you are so inadequate, and I think it's, it's symbolic of, of us just not understanding truly your love, the words thank you, what gratitude is, all of those things. Lord, we can't truly express how grateful we are that you love us the way you do, Lord. So help us to, to be drawn closer to you, that we, would, that we would start to love better, that we would love well. Lord, thank you for the story that you've written in my life and in so many others, Lord. Thank you for, for being a good, good father who lavishes us with your grace, your mercy, and your love. Thank you for, for loving us first and, and showing us, get, setting, that, that, setting the stage, if you will, for, for us to come back to you, to come home. Lord, and thank you for welcoming us the way you do. Thank you for running to meet us the way you do, Lord. Lord, we love you so much and are so grateful. Lord, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.